Good evening, everybody. My name is Dr. Arne Hofmann. I'm the head of the LSE Ideas Cold War Studies program. I'm also the International History Master Senior Tutor, and I'm very happy to welcome you to our event tonight. Now, if you have been following what we've been doing, then you'll know that this is the last in our event series this year, the jewel in the crown, the hopefully glorious crowning final event. Um, as you know, we had previous events with Mary Fulbrook, uh, with uh, Matthew Jones, with David Hoffman, and this is at the end of that, and I would therefore like to pause just for a moment to say thank you for the people who make that possible, um, because there is a lot of work that goes into this behind the scenes. It does take some doing. So I would like to start by thank thanking the LSE Annual Fund, which is funding all of this and is making all of this possible, and it would not be happening without that. But it also wouldn't be happening without the people who I have come to think of as my Cold War army which is to say Chris Parks, the Cold War Studies Program Assistant, Jonathan Rourke, the Cold War Studies Program Intern, and Wes Ulbrich, the Cold War Studies Program Pinto Scholarship Holder. Thank you very much. Thank you for, uh, very much for all that you have been doing for tonight, but thank you very much as well for everything that you have been doing over the year. Now, it gives me great pleasure, great personal pleasure, to introduce Professor Hennessy, now Lord Hennessy, to you tonight. Peter is the perfect guest to finish our event series with. We could hardly have somebody more illustrious as an academic speaker. And Peter, in fact, is very, uh, very unusual in that regard, in that in one career, he has risen to the very top of two fields, has excelled in two fields and made it to the top of both British journalism and British academia. As you may know, Peter has worked as a journalist for the Times Higher Education Supplement, the Times, the Financial Times, the Economist, and Radio 4. That is really not bad, as British journalism goes. Um, once he tra made the transition into academia, he has excelled there equally. He is the Attlee Professor of Modern Contemporary British History at Queen Mary University of London. He was a co-founder of the Institute for Contemporary British History. He's a fellow of the British Academy. He's an honorary fellow of LSE. And, of course, most important of all, he is a fellow of the Cold War Studies Programme. Peter has written eight to nine books, which is a prodigious output anyway. But what is truly remarkable about that is that almost without exception, every one of those books stands as a standard work in the relevant field and is the book to go for, is the work of reference, which is truly impressive and has been rewarded with a number of prizes, most recently the Orville Prize in 2007. And of course, Peter has been made a lord in the House of Lords where he is a crossbench peer since October 2007. All this is truly impressive, but on a personal note, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you here, because on top of all of that, I am also very proud to be able to call, uh, to call you a colleague, seeing that I have worked with you at Queen Mary for two years, and finally to welcome my neighbour. Both Peter and I truly know how great Wolfenstow Village actually is, and one of the great pleasures of living there is that every now and then when you walk to buy a pint of milk, you run into Peter Hennessy on the street and have a wonderful chat. Peter, thank you very much for coming tonight. It is a great pleasure. It is an honor. I welcome you heartily. You're very welcome. And tell us all about catch-up history and the Cold War. Thank you very much. Thank you, Arnie, for that very generous 
introduction, I should point out that Arnie and I live in the Latin quarter of Walthamstow, <laughs> on the left bank of the River Lee, and that I worked for the Times long ago and far away when it was still a quality newspaper, which gives you some idea of exactly how old I am. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be here. A key but often overlooked element in the historian's trade is that we're constantly dealing with unfinished business. We are, or we should be, haunted by what we miss, let alone by what we fail to understand in our attempt to pick up the particles and the patterns of the past. Sometimes it's a matter of big things, not just a question of granules or minute particulars. And it makes us edgy in the old-fashioned, benign sense of that word, a divine edginess, perhaps, that runs alongside the divine spark of curiosity. There is a sub-branch of our collective unfinished business, however, that brings a touch of consolation. It's my subject tonight, catch-up history. And it's this catch-up history that's been the motivation for my writing The Secret State, book in its original form and in its new incarnation, to peer a little into that bit of the post-war British state which, for understandable and obvious reasons, had to be kept under serious wraps while the Cold War lasted. The consolation for me is all the greater because I didn't expect the Cold War to end in my lifetime. And the fact that it did so without global war and nuclear exchange remains the greatest shared boon, I think, of our lifetime. All of us, without exception. I thought the best we could hope for was what Elliot Richardson, when he was ambassador to London, the United States ambassador, called a safer, cheaper form of deadlock. I simply couldn't anticipate the ending, or in a benign form, the ending. And on that theme, I'm actually, too, there's another factor that I can see from some in the audience. Uh, I'm, I'm not alone here. My generation, born in the early post-war, grew up in what Michael Frank called the uranium age. We were the children who grew up, the first to grow up in the shadow of the bomb. And in terms of the ending of the Cold War, it's now become a cliché to upbraid the intelligence agencies of the NATO powers for failing to predict the demise of the Soviet Union and the politico-economic system upon which it rested. Now, I've never taken that view. Even if the British Secret Intelligence Service had possessed a human agent inside Mikhail Gorbachev's most innermost circle in the late 1980s, he or she would not have been able to outline the coming geopolitical soft landing in snatched conversations with his or her MI6 controller. Because, as Mr. Gorbachev explained last summer when he was in London, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the last thing he intended. He said to Mary Dijewski, We should have prevented it. Mostly, though, I reproach myself, even today, I think we went too fast. A country with our history should have taken an evolutionary course. I said reforms would need 20 or 30 years, but such passions were raging as Glasnost and Perestroika as they gained pace and the calls, he said, thumping the table at this point, were mostly to go faster, faster, to go on, go on. Now, British intelligence was plagued, I think, as an outsider, by the old secrets and mysteries problem. Now, what do I mean by that? During the Cold War, the hardest job in the intelligence world was to divine the mysteries of the other side, which is the intentions of successive Soviet leaderships, rather than the Soviet Union's secrets, which with difficulty you could get, order of battle, capability of weapons, and so on. But even if the government communications headquarters had managed to wire up Mr. Gorbachev's little grey cells, they could not have presented to the Joint Intelligence Committee an advanced copy of the story as it actually was to unfold. 
And as a friend of mine in the intelligence business still said the other day, after the Gorbachev interview, actually it was, it was last year in The Independent, speaking of people like the former Soviet leader, they are often mysteries unto themselves. But back to our own British secrets and the attempts of my own, my colleagues and my students to get them out of the deep freeze. Because that's what really we do when we go into the National Archives and other archives. It's a kind of frozen history that we deal with and the trick is to warm it up a bit until it begins to twitch, the limbs begin to twitch, then finally the lungs crank into action and you can talk to them, interrogate them. And there's limits to that, of course, but that's the key. We are, uh, we are the ones who have to bring the frozen history to life. And we Brits owe a very great deal, or we scholars of Britain, owe a very great deal to William Waldgrave, John Major's cabinet office minister in the mid to early 1990s, that great rarity a cabinet minister who read books out of pleasure for a pleasure, not guru books to talk kind of ideological bollocks at party conferences, but proper books. And I can see my old friend John Ashworth there, and he remembers too William was genuinely interested in science. He has bags of intellectual curiosity. Terribly tough thing in the political class of recent times to be a scholar and a gent. But anyway, I digress. We owe a great deal to William because... It was a great historical breakthrough, as it turned out, when he gave me an interview in the early 90s for the Radio 4 Analysis Programme on open government, when he invited historians to let him know which files retained beyond the normal 30 years they would like Whitehall to re-review to see if they could now be released to the National Archives. I knew this was a personal initiative because his private secretary changed colour and began to write very fast verbatim notes when William promised this and a white paper to follow. And indeed, the private secretary rushed downstairs to the cabinet secretary and said, the minister's just given away an open government white paper. So it was quite a moment with the tape recorder going. Now, the so-called Waldgrave Initiative, as we christened it, produced a bonanza. By the time Whitehall stopped counting the fruits of the Waldgrave Initiative in 1998, because New Labour wasn't interested in it because they hadn't invented it, some 96,000 files had been liberated by the process. And it continues to this day the tally must be well over 150,000. And the trick for those of you who are uh, setting out on the PhD is not to go straight to the Freedom of Information Act, but to ask the Whitehall Department's historical sections, registries, um, records reviewers, if they could see their way clear to getting a great sequence declassified for you, a whole run of documents, a so-called proactive release, because that's what you need as a scholar. The little snippets are interesting, but they're never enough. And if you can get a whole run of documents declassified, that's the way to do it. And also freedom of information is terribly adversarial. So go the Walgrave initiative route because it's still there. And the government departments have been terribly good at uh, helping young scholars. You can see why, because young scholars, I mean, look around are so much nicer than the usual freedom of information types, particularly those who are obsessed with unidentified flying objects <laughs> who make up a very high proportion of the litigants. And uh, play on that, my dears, play on that when you want some documents for your master's thesis or your PhD. Now, the so-called Walgrave Initiative gave us a very substantial new historical currency with which to trade. And the product is a growing number of books, articles and theses at the PhD, master's and indeed the undergraduate levels too. And the flow since My Secret State was first published over eight years ago now has been rich and revealing. Let me give you a few examples from the contents of the new edition of the book. Perhaps the most chilling and dramatic come from the plans for the final days and hours of peace before a third world war engulfed the United Kingdom 
and a substantial part of the globe. One piece of detailed planning was kept from ministers. Which of them would go to what bunker? I remember bumping into the incomparable Lord Carrington last summer when I was going to Chatham House to talk on this theme, and I said, I've got the file which says where you would have gone if the Cuban Missile Crisis had tipped into World War III. He said, they never told me. <laughs> in fact, they didn't ever tell. Uh, one or two knew, and I'll come back to that in a second, but they didn't know. But two files have been declassified since the first edition of the book. One contains the list drawn up for Harold Macmillan in September 1961 as the Berlin crisis worsened. Do you remember Checkpoint Charlie and all that? The other, the comparable list that was shown to Harold Wilson in June 1966, at a time when we were threatened by nothing more than a sterling crisis and the possibility of losing to West Germany in the World Cup, so nothing changes there, does it? Only the pair of ministers chosen by Macmillan and Wilson to be their deputies for nuclear retaliation purposes, lest the Prime Minister be out of reach or already wiped out by a bolt from the blue nuclear attack, only they knew which bunker they were going to in advance. This system, the two alternative nuclear retaliators, by the way, was new in September 1961. And what had happened, you see, was... Uh, well, I'll come back to what had happened in a minute. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But Macmillan, as the Berlin crisis worsened, he came back from slaughtering fur and feather in the borders uh, to number 10, and the cabinet office said, you've got to choose your alternative nuclear retaliators. It's getting a bit difficult, Prime Minister. And with a characteristic dash of comédie noire and Shakespearean illusion, he wrote in that terrible handwriting, because he had a bullet through his hand in the Battle of Luz, the Great War, I agree the following. First grave digger, Mr. Butler... Second grave digger, Mr. Lloyd. Harold Macmillan, 6th of October, 1961. Apart from the deputies, Wilson's in 1966 were Herbert Bowden, who nobody remembers, and Dennis Healy, who everybody remembers. Um, none of the others knew of their fate until either they found those files in the National Archives, which I don't think they have, or read the London Might Be Silenced chapter in the new edition of my Secret State book. In fact, there's very few of them alive, actually, now, that were on either of those lists. It's interesting and reassuring to those of us of a certain age that Harold Wilson kept his mercurial deputy, George Brown, who liked a drink, away from nuclear retaliation duties. <laughs> In June 1966, George Brown was earmarked for the World War III War Cabinet bunker under Box Hill in the Wiltshire Cotswolds, the famous turnstile, as it was codenamed, to which Wilson, his Foreign Secretary Michael Stewart, his Cabinet Secretary Burke Trend, plus 23 other senior military, official and diplomatic advisers would have been whisked from Horse Guards Parade by RAF helicopters in the final moments of peace, preventive diplomacy having failed, as we now know from yet another, early file, another file declassified since I first wrote the book, codenamed Operation Visitation. Now, Operation Visitation had appeared in certain other files, a little summary that was sent to the Queen of the end of her kingdom in 1965, for example, ends up with Operation Visitation without saying what it was. I thought it was a suitably Old Testament code name for the end of the world, for nuclear exchange, but it isn't. It's the plan to get the RAF helicopters from uh, Little Rissington, I think it was, in the Cotswolds, to Northolt to refuel, to Horse Guards Parade, and then off to the bunker near Corsham. That's what Operation Visitation was. But there is a god of the archives, ladies and gentlemen, and this scholarly deity shone on me a year ago after the cabinet office, or a year and a half ago now, had convened a high-level meeting which agreed to my request for a central government war book to be declassified. Now, the central government war book pulls, oh, it did in the Cold War, and it still does, I think, in its 
modern form, pulls together all the departmental plans and the military plans for the transition to war, in this case, World War III. And it was too sensitive to be declassified for a long time because I kept asking for it. But they had this meeting, and it was quite a big meeting because it was setting a precedent, you see. And they very kindly declassified the 1970 version of it for me, of which more in a moment. And after that meeting, as it was breaking up, a veteran official who'd given long service to what in the Cold War was called the Cabinet Office's Overseas and Defence Secretariat, Nick Gibbons, remembered that they'd had a special cupboard, access to which was restricted to a tiny handful of officials, in which they kept war books and retaliation drills. And he wondered what had happened to it. And a search was mounted, and it was found in the Cabinet Office's storeroom. And mercifully, they found a key. And it was full of war books, stretching back to 1935 from 1979. It also contained royal warrants ready for the Queen to sign, just before the end, granting pretty well absolute powers under the emergency legislation that would have been rushed through Parliament in the last days of peace, before Parliament was prorogued for the duration, giving absolute powers over life and death and property to Cabinet Ministers in charge of the 12 civil defence regions in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. We were going to be split up into 12 mini-kingdoms for the purposes of trying to get some kind of government going after the attack. And it reads like this. It's the most beautiful document. I mean, there's nothing like a British constitutional document. Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and by other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, to our, then you fill in the name of the Cabinet Minister. Greeting. That's the bit I like. <laughs> You're just about to leave your family and go underground, probably never to surface again. Greeting. In pursuance of Regulation 4.2 of the Defence Machinery of Government Regulations, we hereby appoint you the said name again to be a regional commissioner for the purposes of those regulations, given at our court of St. James on the day of blah, 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 19 and something in the year of our reign by Her Majesty's command. Beautiful. At the same time, the bunker chiefs would have been given a sealed envelope, which is also in that cupboard, containing notes of guidance for regional commissioners on what their job entailed and which functions, prosecution of the war, relationships with foreign powers, will be reserved to the Prime Minister and the War Cabinet in turnstile under Box Hill. Again, this was never seen by its intended recipients. And again, it was again amongst those gems that came out of the lost and now found Cabinet Office cupboard. Another historical breakthrough of a physical kind this time was the full avowal of turnstile and its Cold War purpose by the Ministry of Defence in 2004. Because when I first visited part of it in 2001, it was still technically a deception. And I suspect the Russians were still keeping an eye on it from a satellite that went over Bath uh, quite a few times a day. And a good deal of shadow boxing went on between me and a wonderful man who showed me around. He was an RAF staff sergeant then, Andy Quinn, who was the security officer. Because I shouldn't really have been let there, but the Cabinet Office, being gents of both sexes, had decided when they made the mistake to say I could go, they couldn't exactly rescind it. But Andy Quinn spent the entire day, and it was a day, extraordinary place, under the Cotswolds, trying to persuade me it wasn't what I'd been led to believe it was. And I couldn't tell him that I knew privately why he was going through this rigmarole, because it was a deception and the sodding Russian satellite above. And it was the most extraordinary day, and we became great friends as a result of this, and it was an immense relief to both of us when it was finally avowed as what it was. And since 2004, I visited Turnstile with my students, a BBC journalist or two, and former Turnstile initiates. Uh, it's fascinating. It's uh, carved out of the Bath Stone Quarry. It's immensely austere. 
You know where the Prime Minister would have been, Mr. Macmillan, in Cuba, if it had tilted. <clears throat> because um, at the telephone directory, never neglect telephone directory, it's terribly important, but also because it's the only uh, little cell in the place with its own ensuite loo, and that's always a giveaway as well. And the map room is the fascinating bit, with its ministerial viewing area. Remember the Battle of Britain anniversary last autumn, you, you had all those pictures of Churchill up at Bentley Priory, wherever it was, with sort of wafts down beneath doing this with little planes. It's very like that, a viewing area overlooking this map room. Um, and this is where the retaliation, the nuclear retaliation, would have been launched from had the Cuban Missile Crisis tipped over and had Macmillan and the, the little late party got there in the helicopters in time. If not, it would have been the alternative nuclear retaliator. In turn, star Mr. Butler would have let it off unless he changed his mind or unless he felt there was no point. Now, I have a photograph of Turnstile, the map room, in the new edition of the book. It's quite small. It's only about 50 feet by 30 feet, carved out of this bath stone. It's the, and the UK equivalent of Dr. Strangelove's big board in the famous film is um, a chipboard, a bit of chipboard fastened to the walls at either end. It's not much bigger than this, you see. If they'd been an Ikea in 1960, that's where they would have bought it. <laughs> very British, very austere. I couldn't see the drawing pins, but there's a sort of stockpile in what they call the library of things like drawing pins and maps and so on. Now, the only cabinet office official meeting ever to be held there was in September 2008, of which I was a part, when Tessa Sterling chaired her last meeting in charge of the cabinet office's advisory group on security and intelligence records. And as we sat there working through the agenda, a fine film of limestone dust accumulated upon our persons. Very strange. The Queen, by the way, was not destined for turnstile. The beauties and practicalities of the British Constitution, which have fascinated me since adolescence, had to be sustained even unto Armageddon. It was plain to all, you see, and the Chiefs of Staff actually produced a paper on this, or their advisers did, that once turnstile started operating post-nuclear attack and the signals traffic roared out of it, the subs with their detection equipment would have realised what it was and would have put a very enormous thermonuclear hydrogen bomb on top of Box Hill, which would have wrecked much of it. It's only 100 feet beneath the surface, you see. And certainly all the exits would have been blocked. And if you go down in the lift to Turnstile, the first thing you see carved out in the limestone, in the old quarry, as it's called, is a very grim graffito, which is undated. And it says, stuck here, numeral for eternity. Stuck here for eternity. So as the Queen is the only person, as I'm sure you know, who can appoint a Prime Minister, she is a Heineken Lager monarch. You see, there are certain bits of the Constitution that only she can reach, and appointing a Prime Minister is one of them. She had to be kept well away from ministers who were certain to be entombed, or virtually certain to be entombed, in that bunker. So, kept away she would have been, on the Royal Yacht Britannia. <laughs> you see, all that stuff about it being a hospital ship in time of war was cover story, pure balls. Pure balls. It has nuclear washdown facilities, very good communications, or it did do because it's gone now. And the plan was for it to be her floating bunker in the sea locks off the northwest of Scotland. It would go at night from one sea lock to another, and the mountains are sufficiently high to keep the SOV radar off it, you see. And on board would be the minister attending her, the Home Secretary. <clears throat> and he and the Home Secretary with Her Majesty, her private secretary and the Duke of Edinburgh, all Privy Councillors, could form a quarate Privy Council to appoint a new Prime Minister and Cabinet from those who'd survived 
in the other bunkers or crawled out of the rubble. Now, isn't that a piece, piece of beautiful constitutional planning? <laughs> Everything was taken care of in that sense. Now, since the first editions of the book, we've had just a flicker of the function of the Royal Yacht appearing in the documents. After the Russian naval attaché was trailed to caution by MI5 early in 63, because they were, if they went 50 miles beyond the radius outside London, they weren't meant to do that, you see, and they were trailed, um, MI5 became very worried, in fact, became increasingly convinced that Soviet intelligence was beginning to rumble that something sensitive was afoot in those Cotswold hills. I thought it was Captain Ivanov, actually, who was sharing Christine Keeler with my old friend Jack Profumo, do you remember? Uh, but it wasn't. He'd been sent home in disgrace in January 63, um, so it was probably his successor. So alternative plans were worked up, and by the spring of 1968, the turnstile-centred arrangements had morphed into a more dispersed and flexible system codenamed Python. Now, we don't know much about Python because it forms the basis of the current system. But among the alternative Python locations in the papers is a vessel, a Royal Fleet Auxiliary vessel, the Engadine, I think it was a helicopter carrier, presumably for ministers, and the Royal Yacht. Now, what other examples of Cold War catch-up history are there in the new edition of the book? Declassification of the 1970 government war book has enabled me to reconstruct for the first time in a new chapter called End Games, much, though not all, of the sequence of decision-taking by the simulated cabinet and its transition to war committee during Exercise Invaluable, which played out in the mercifully fictional lead-up to the global war of October 1968, after a change to a regime in Moscow of a complete bunch of aggressive nasties, which is always the first scenario in these transition to war exercises. Uh, fictionally again, uh, I'm glad to say, but Brezhnev, you remember, had repressed the Prague Spring just a few months earlier, and there was quite a lot of international tension around in October 68. And the Joint Intelligence Committee assessment staff were producing some very interesting papers on unintended escalation by both sides leading to war through inadvertence on the back of the... Um, actually, they did it on the back of Cuba, but if I remember, they had another look at it in the late 60s. And these exercises start with a bunch to... change to a bunch of real nasties in the Kremlin, and they end up with R hour. R hour stands for Nuclear Release Hour. And there are 16 chapters of the late 60s, early 70s government war book, and the war book required the taking of 200 separate decisions, 80 of them by the full cabinet which is amazing in our era because Tony Blair's cabinets in whatever it was, 12 years, didn't take 80 proper decisions at all. So God knows what the fraction was, but it was much smaller than that. But that's when we had proper cabinet government. Well, it's been restored again, hasn't it? It's had more comebacks than Judy Garland cabinet government, <laughs> partly because the coalition requires it to. David Cameron pretends he wanted to anyway, but who knows? But the civil service love it. They're all entirely herbivorous people, and they much prefer collective cabinet government to anything else. And this... Quite a consolation to the older of them, as indeed it is to me, because I'm a fully paid-up herbivore. I don't know why I tell you these things. <laughs> anyway, there is, in this frozen history now warmed up, a heroine we didn't know about in the strange world of the war books, and her picture's going to be in the next reprint of the book, because a great friend of mine at the National Archives, David Chin, managed to find one. Um, she was called Mrs. Beryl Grimble, an executive officer in the cabinet office who kept the war books trim and up-to-date from 1958 to 1973. That was her job, all the time. Could you imagine it, concentrating on that? 
She was known to her devoted staff, though not, I suspect, to her face, as the Queen of the War Book or Auntie Beryl. <laughs> and the Mrs. Grimbles of this world need their place in the historical sun when they can have them. And I reckon in every country in the world there's a Mrs. Grimble that holds the show together. I'm absolutely certain of it. I do wish I'd met her, but she died a while ago. I've put quite a lot in the book about those who served the Queen on the dark side. They tend to cluster around the first line of defence, which is intelligence, and the last line, which is the V-bomber crews, in the days when the RAF carried the nuclear deterrent, and later the submariner guardians of it. And there's a special new chapter on them called The Human Button, as was the BBC Radio 4 documentary I made about them with my friend and producer Richard Knight in 2008. There's coverage, too, of what I call in the book Appendix Z People, Appendix Z was a special part of the government war book dealing with nuclear retaliation procedures. Copies of it, so it was so sensitive, were kept separate from the rest of the war book and restricted to very few. And again, these turned up, the appendices Z, in the lost cabinet office cupboard. And they were prepared for release um, by a marvellous team in the cabinet office, um, Alan Glennie and Nick Weeks, to whom we owe enormous amount, actually, very specialised record reviewers. And one bit in Appendix Z is too sensitive to actually be mentioned even in there, and it's euphemised. And it's what is called, in the business, the last resort letters. And since Ted Heath's time, each new Prime Minister has had to sit down quite early on in their Premiership after a briefing and write down their wishes from beyond the grave, whether to retaliate or not, when the whole country's gone and they've been wiped out. And that's when you know your Prime Minister. Nothing can prepare you for that. There are four choices, essentially. Retaliate, don't retaliate. <clears throat> if you don't retaliate, put yourself under the command of the Americans if you can get there. Or if America has gone, go to Australia. Or put into a neutral port. And the last one is captain of the boat to decide, which is the one the Royal Navy do not like. And nobody knows what's in those letters unless a Prime Minister decides to tell us, and only one has, Jim Callaghan. And this is when... It still happens, this, this is the same sequence. And they're briefed by the Cabinet Secretary, and since the last election, the National Security Advisor, Sir Peter Ricketts, briefed, as well as the Cabinet Secretary, Gus O'Donnell. And um, <clears throat> as you would expect, none of, them, none of them find it at all easy. Quite the reverse. And only they can do it. The new edition also takes a look at what I call the very swift construction of the new protective state in the United Kingdom since the dreadful events of 9-11, and a great deal of the new protective state, certainly compared to the Cold War secret state, <clears throat> when the Cold War was still in operation, has been commendably put in the public domain. And I'm now still trying rapidly to catch up with the work and work patterns of David Cameron's National Security Council, an idea, I think, whose time has come. For those of you that have done deep 20th century history, you will probably see it as I do, as the old Committee of Imperial Defence with better IT but you couldn't call it the Committee of Imperial Defence anymore. It might be misunderstood. But it's essentially the same model that Arthur Balfour created in 1902 and that was made permanent in 1904. And I also have a treatment in the book of what I call the deals between ministers and the intelligence community as well as between the intelligence community and parliament in an open society like ours with a very, very special intelligence tradition which we can discuss at question time, if you like what intelligence does and doesn't do in an open society, where the boundaries are and all that. It's intriguing to think about certain other of the continuities and discontinuities of the shift from a Cold War secret state to our new protective state. 
the designers of the new protective state were pretty well all shaped by insider Cold War experience. The British notion of career crown service, not a, not a politically appointed civil service, helps ensure a remarkable continuity inside our civil, diplomatic, military and intelligence services, which I think is a huge advantage. In fact, I think it's indispensable. But perhaps the swiftest Cold War restoration in the hours and days after 9-11 was the practice of appointing two ministers <coughs> as the Prime Minister's deputies for nuclear retaliation purposes. This had lapsed in that strange limbo period between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Twin Towers. I remember when the first edition of The Secret State came out, and I went on a programme which I do not recommend for the faint-hearted Radio 5 Live, Nicky Campbell, who's a clever and a nice man. I was on with the American cast of The Full Monty, who knew the square root of bugger all about Cold War history, as it turned out. But anyway, they were awfully nice. And I talked about the nuclear deputies being restored, and the phones went red. The whole country seemed to ring in, because they were obsessed with the question of whether John Prescott was one of them or not. <laughs> and I could reassure them that he wasn't, but I wasn't going to tell them who they were. Because it's done on a personal basis, not hierarchy, you see. But an example of discontinuity within continuity, as it were, is the intelligence, secrets and mysteries equation, isn't it? Because there's no mystery about the intentions of Al-Qaeda and its associates. The mystery is where they are, which back street, which hotel room, what kind of bomb, what kind of operation they're planning. There's a specially chilling, almost uncanny continuity that very nearly spans the period covered by the new edition, and it's this. In a report drawn up during the anxious early days of the Korean War, in September 1950, just a year after the West realised the Soviet Union had built an atomic bomb significantly sooner than expected, a highly sensitive Whitehall group, operating under the completely boring and deliberately misleading title of the Imports Research Committee, examined the possibility of a clandestine atomic attack on the United Kingdom launched by Russia. They looked at the contingency of a bomb being brought in in bits in the diplomatic bag and assembled in a garage in Acton. I don't know why they chose Acton, but they did. And the detonation of an atomic bomb, this is the bit, in a suicide, this is quote, suicide aircraft, civil, flying low over a key point. The Imports Research Committee concluded it's possible, and there doesn't seem to be any answer to it. The crew of the aircraft, in order to detonate the bomb at the right time, would have to know what their cargo was, and would therefore be a suicide squad, this is quote. Short of firing on every strange civil aircraft that appears over our own shores, we know of no way of preventing an aircraft that sets out on such a mission from succeeding. Fast forward to now, 60 years, 61 years on nearly, and consider today's cold rules for national safety, to borrow that great phrase Robinson and Gallagher used in their classic book, Africa and the Victorians, cold rules for national safety. <clears throat> Think of the planners of 2011, and the small number of ministers, who include the Prime Minister, Home Secretary, and at least one other, usually two, who have to contemplate and exercise the contingency of another kind of potential suicide civil aircraft flying into UK airspace from the Middle East or North Africa. It's either been hijacked, which we would know about probably, or it's refusing to answer calls from air traffic control, losing height, and soon to pass over the M25. And they have to decide whether to shoot it down so that it crashes before it gets inside the M25. And they have the same feelings to feel as their equivalents in the early 1950s, as the RAF typhoons on quick reaction alert at RAF Cunningsby are in the air and ready to fire. Chilling, dreadful. That is a continuity. 
Most of what I've had to say this evening is about the Cold War-related sections of the Secret State book, and it's been for me a strange enterprise writing about it. <clears throat> I tend to go for subjects normally which are at least susceptible to Ealing comedy treatment. I mean, the British Constitution, for example, is a hoot. Not that I know what it is, but uh, for me it is the Ealing comedy that was never made. But even with the relief of World War III not coming to pass constantly in mind, it's very tough to find any traces of Ealing comedy in the story I've been relating this evening. But I did find a few, and I'm determined to finish on a more cheerful note so that you don't go home in a state of depression and anxiety. Central line is quite bad enough without that. <laughs> the, first, uh, the first story some of you may have heard already, so you'll have to forgive me. The second, I think, is new. The old story first, and it goes back to the re nuclear retaliators being appointed in the early 60s. British Intelligence, Joint Intelligence Committee, warned that the Soviet missiles could reach our beloved soil very swiftly if the Russians launched a bolt from the blue attack because they had submarines in the North Sea that could do it and low trajectory missiles in East Germany and much more swiftly than the four minutes that we anticipated the warning and plans were laid to alert Harold Macmillan if he were out of town in the prime ministerial limo that there was incoming and a cunning plan was formed you see because the treasury didn't want to spend any money and Macmillan didn't want any fuss so the cunning plan that was developed was for the Prime Minister's car to be linked to the key Whitehall operations room <coughs> that was itself linked to RAF Filingdales, the early warning station in Yorkshire. And the link of the Prime Minister's car to the operations room will be provided by the Automobile Association, the AA. The same system they use for contacting those wonderful blokes on bikes in brown jodhpurs that used to salute when they saw an AA badge on your car. And, of course, there's no coding, is there? It's all en clair. And this was long before the days of car phones, let alone mobiles. And three official cars were kitted out, ready in the spring of 1962, in time, as it turned out, for the unanticipated Cuban Missile Crisis the following autumn. And the exchange of letters at the end of May 1962 between Brian Saunders, private secretary to the Minister of Works, who was then responsible for the government carpool, and the very polished Tim Bly, McWillan's principal private secretary, number 10, has to be read pretty well in full to be savoured properly. So you must forgive me, it's a long quote. Saunders tells Bly that the radios have now been fitted in three cars. I understand that these radios are to be maintained by Pies, an electronics firm in Cambridge now long gone, and it will be presumably necessary for someone to make a daily or weekly call to the AA control station as a check that they're in working order. I understand that if an emergency arose while the Prime Minister was on the road, the proposal is to use the radio to get him to a telephone. Perhaps we should see that our drivers are provided with four pennies. Now, some of you will get this straight away, because in the early 60s, you had to put four pennies into the box before you could press button A to get in. Perhaps we should see that our drivers are, uh, are, are provided with four pennies. <clears throat> I should hate to think of you trying to get change for a, for a sixpence from a bus conductor <laughs> while those four minutes are ticking by. Now, Tim Bly, of course, senior civil service on top of it all, replies to Saunders as follows. The first sentence of your last paragraph is correct, but a shortage of pennies should not present quite the difficulties which you envisaged. Whilst it may be desirable when motoring, lovely statuesque language, whilst it may be desirable when motoring, 
to carry a few pennies in one's pocket. Occasions do arise when by some misfortune or miscalculation they have been expended and one is penniless. <laughs> in such cases, however, it is a simple matter to have the cost of any telephone call transferred by dialing 100 and requesting reversal of the charge. <laughs> and, this, and this does not take any appreciable extra time. The system works well in both normal and STD, that subscriber trunk dialing, telephone kiosk, and our drivers are aware of it, so that's all right then. But this being Whitehall, there is a fallback. We are considering the possibility of this office taking up membership of the AA, <laughs> which would give our drivers keys to AA and RAC boxes throughout the country, so we're okay. That's me, not Kim Bly. Perfect. Now, for those sensitive to questions of national identity, only the British, of all the nuclear powers existing in 1962, or those to come, actually, could have dreamt up a system like that. And if the file containing the Saunders-Bly correspondence had leaked to the KGB resident in London in 1962, let us call him Colonel Vladimir Nokobolikov, Colonel Nokobolikov would have thought it was a deception, if not a spook. <laughs> My other Ealing comedy moment, which I will finish upon, is this. For years amongst the war bookers, a story has swelled about a leak, not to the Prussians, not, not to the Russians, not, the, not to the press, but to a part of Whitehall <clears throat> to which wargaming, as opposed to the real thing, was not meant to reach. Uh, some of you will have lived off it for a while. It's long gone. It's called the Civil Service Catering Organization, or Cisco, headquarters in Basingstoke. Thanks to my friend Brian Gilmore, who played the Prime Minister in one of the 1970s exercises, it can now be confirmed. I do have an enduring memory, said Brian, of being briefed. Should I discover that I'd received a message which required me to communicate with the chief executive of the Civil Service Catering Organization, I was on no account to do so. Now, why? Because in a previous exercise, the Cisco teleprinter had tapped into action without exercise, exercise written all over it, and instructed the head of Cisco to go out, not to tell anybody, and to go out and buy enough provisions to stock a range of bunkers in the south and southwest of England for three months. Scarcely pausing to say, Wilco said, Brian, he did so. And the cash and carries of Hampshire and Berkshire were raided for tins of beans and peas and heaven knows what else. And the costs were hidden away under some obscure vote heading and spread out over a number of years to prevent detection by the National Audit Office and Her Majesty's Treasury. <laughs> As to the fate of the peas and beans, my dears, that remains a classic Cold War mystery to this day. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for a fascinating and characteristically engaging talk. I'll start us off with the first question and then I'll open up the questions to you. Um, let me ask you, since you lived through much of the Cold War, and of course were highly aware of it, not least because you were professionally covering parts of it too, and then changed roles not just professionally but also biographically because you went from living through it and experiencing it to catching up, in your words, to experiencing it. What, over time, has that catching up process done to your view of the Cold War, what has it amounted to, and to your view, looking back at it, at, of yourself in it. If you imagine your younger self in the Cold War now, what do you make of that yourself, 
Britain and the Cold War as you look back over 20 years after having caught up? Well, partly there's always immense pleasure in recollection and tranquility and the perpetual relief that it didn't happen. Also, how close run a thing it was, not just at the obvious moments like Cuba, but it could, we could have all gone in one afternoon, which is extraordinary. That Strath report of 1955, if I was uh, get, getting my grandsons, they're too young for this now, and also it would be unkind to indoctrinate them into this world too soon, into that world that we lived in. You didn't need a degree in physics to know what Hiroshima and Nagasaki meant, and you didn't need a degree in physics to know that the H-bombs, when they came in the 50s, were 1,000 to 1,500 times more powerful than those bombs. But the Strath Report of 1955 is the way in, because it crystallizes all the anxieties we had, but in a very precise form. And it was drawn up. Churchill authorized it, and it was released. It was distributed to cabinet, of cabinet ministers on a personal basis. They couldn't keep it, they could read it, they had to give it back in 1955. And it was the effect of 10, 10 megaton Russian hydrogen bombs on the UK. 46 million of us in 1955. 12 million die straight away, probably in the space of a day. 4 million seriously injured straight away. Many millions more go through radiation poisoning in the next three weeks to two months, three months. And when you peer into that abyss, and also, they laid out what would be left of the cities, what would be left of British industry. They actually say it's beyond the imagination until it happens. And that, of all the documents I've ever read, immensely sensitive, it took a long time to get it declassified, is the window into that world. Now, I've only known a couple of people who would have ever read that, really, that document. I'm Philip Allen, who was the Home Office man, and it was a friend of mine. And he would, of course, never talk about these things until they were declassified because he kept to the rules. But for me, it crystallizes so much of the shadow that we grew up in. Not that we were in any way uh, upset. Uh, it, was, it wasn't a constant obsession, but it was always there in the background. It was the paradox of growing affluence. We were the best provided for generation ever, my one, um, in post-war, the post-war generation in terms of health, education, and welfare. We were, as a friend of mine said the other day, the generation who expected to be paid for right through to the end of our higher education. And in terms of what had gone before, in terms of nutrition and health, we were amazingly well provided for. And we sort of knew that. But at the same time, there was this lurking feeling that could all go in a great flash, a roar, heat and dust in the space of an afternoon. And getting into the entrails of these documents is fascinating. Just occasionally, to be quite honest, it gets too much. I made the error when I was first reading the Strath Report and writing it up in the first edition of the book of putting Brahms's German Requiem on the CD, and the combination of the two was too much. I had to go for a walk. I'm quite an insensitive brute by most people's standards, but uh, being of my age group, this has a particular resonance for me. The other thing, and I'm not just saying this because a friend of mine from that world, or perhaps more than one friend of mine in that world is here, in the intelligence terms is the candor of it. British intelligence, for sure, the Joint Intelligence Committee and its assessment staff, was very candid at telling its customers when it didn't really have much to go on, in some cases nothing at all, and what was based on evidence and what wasn't. And also, it was a very restraining business. One of the problems with growing up uh, as an adolescent in the 60s was one very often took a kind of guardian view of life, that people in British intelligence were reactionaries, red in tooth and claw, reds under the beds. Au contraire. Au contraire. They were very restrained. 
and indeed the Security Service MI5 was very reluctant to extend positive vetting clearances beyond the absolute minimum. They were determined not to go down the American route of the purges, naming and shaming. Um, there's an MI5 report from the late 40s which shows a certain tenderness to the Communist Party of Great Britain, for example. Proper party, operating in public, um, very solid, decent people, interested in health, education and welfare, very well briefed on the world. Um, they, did, they were the working class members of the CPGB, MI5 really liked. It was the sodding intellectuals they worried about, particularly if they were in Whitehall. But if you read the intelligence stuff, the Guardian view of life is simply not sustained. And it's very important that, that the, the Crown Service tradition in the UK of not flamming things up and also of keeping very separate, which is the great gift of the World War II experience of intelligence to the Cold War, and it's been broken once in recent times, the very special British view that the producers and analysts of intelligence are not the same people as the decision takers. It's left up to others to decide what to do on the basis of that picture so that that picture is unvarnished, it spares people nothing, and you don't get that creeping uh, temptation which the KGB always had, and some of the American agencies have too, to serve it up in a way which is going to bring a glow of pleasure to the customers because it confirms their existing prejudices. And you see this tradition in those documents when you compare uh, the Joint Intelligence Committee assessments and the Joint Intelligence Committee minutes and memoranda with the Cabinet's Overseas and Defence Committee, for example. As far as one can see, that pearl beyond price of the British intelligence tradition is maintained. Now, none of this we would have known about if we hadn't had the runs of documents, you see. And we've only very recently had the runs of documents because the Joint Intelligence Committee files were William Wardegrave in that same interview in 1992 announced that they, they could come out, they could be exempted from the complete ban on intelligence-related records, although it would take a while to catch up with the 30 years. And it's enabled us to have serious intelligence history in ever larger amounts, and it's rescuing the subject from the airport bookstore wallers. Because there's more fantasy per square inch written about the British Intelligence Service than anything except the British royal family. And when occasionally the two seem to elide, it's hopeless. And so this is the great virtue in catch-up history for those on the inside, or at least I think it is, I hope it is. So the whole thing has created this virtuous cycle. Of course, there's some things we still don't know. There's always things that you wish you could get. Uh, and you never will. And of course, there are some things you shouldn't get. You shouldn't get the recipe of how to make an H-bomb, for example. Um, but the amount that's retained now from those years is very, very small indeed. And there's a lot of catch-up still to be done, and it will keep our younger scholars going for a very, very long time. And also, it triggers oral history, because almost invariably the people that were serving the Queen in these secret places keep to their obligations and don't talk unless you can show them the colour of a document. And it's very important that you do that. And so the combination of the two approaches has fructified enormously. So it's a great time to be a contemporary British historian, particularly of this world. Or I think it is anyway, but I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> Thank you. On that note, let me open up the floor uh, for questions from you. I'm going to take two questions at a time. Could I ask you to wait until the stewards have gotten the microphone to you to quickly say who you are and to keep your questions brief, short and concise? Questions for Peter Hennessy. The gentleman over there near the column and the gentleman here in the front row. One of you go first. Thank you. 
Do you have a view on the relevance of 30 years? It's quite a long time uh, in today's fast-moving affairs. Uh, and also, it makes it quite hard in terms of the age of the people and oral history. Uh, are we well served by that, or are we badly served by that, in your view, please? Good question. Thank you. Uh, John Young, I'm a sixth form teacher of history and politics. And I'd just like to ask something about the early 1960s, which arguably was perhaps the nastiest part of the whole Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, the British decided not to have a proper nuclear deterrent. We had the American Polaris system. And then the French decided to maintain their own deterrent uh, and then withdrew from the NATO command structure, which, if even, was the most significant. <laughs> Good questions. 30 years, I'm glad it's going down to 20, which it is. Um, when does it start flowing out? Is it January 2013? And then they're going to catch up the 10 years between. They're going to release two years at a time until they catch up to 20. Um, what we have to watch for, though, we historians, is the fine print to the record reviewers. The sensitivity review is bound to be tougher if it's 20 years than 30. And I'll be putting down a parliamentary question in Hogwarts at some point uh, when we get closer to that um, to see what the sensitivity reviewers get for 30 and what they're going to get for 20. Because there is bound to be a price we pay for getting closer to it in the sensitive areas. It's inevitable, and I don't complain about that. Um, it's... It is desirable, if it can be sooner, if it's safer, because you can talk to people, more people, and all the rest of it. But it's quite tricky for the politicians. They're very worried about it. I remember Lord Hailsham, who was Lord Chancellor and therefore Minister for Public Records, when the Suez documents were declassified in January 87. And being an honourable old gent, he took himself off the case, because normally, in a really messy one, they'd have to consult him. He was First Lord of the Admiralty at the time, and he could not have anticipated as First Lord of the Admiralty there'd be Minister for Public Records when these immensely sensitive files came. So there'd be a lot more of that. But it is a good thing. My only worry is that in the current financial conditions, they won't put enough people on it in the records reviewing trade in Whitehall. They've already done miracles on the Walgrave Initiative with no extra people, and I'm sure they're going to be cuts. So it's going to be quite a job to do that. Uh, on the French and the British, the Americans gave a lot of help to the French, actually, um, which we didn't know about once they went into submarines and ballistic missiles. But the price the French paid for a greater degree of independence than the UK is it took about 12% of their defence budget when you even it out over several years, and us getting a lot of it off the shelf from the United States takes about 4%. And the French paid a very high price for that in terms of conventional forces. But there's much more American know-how if you slice through their warheads. And also the Royal Navy was able to give a bit of help despite the agreement with the Americans. Um, uh, what's it called? Carbon scrubbers? Some of you here may be submariners cleaning the air. We were able to help them with that. And one or two other things. And of course now we're going to share facilities. There's a lot of nonsense talked earlier in the year about part of the time we'll have a, a stake in a, in a French nuclear submarine out there so we can save money on ours, not having continuous at-sea patrols anymore, which I think would be a mistake. I mean, can you imagine a, a discussion between Cameron and Sarkozy about whether this is the moment to retaliate or not? I mean, it's absurd. <laughs> but sharing facilities, Val Duke and Aldermaston, is a good idea, I think. But, um, and Ted Heath was very keen on that. He had a special cabinet committee in the early 70s. Because Richard Nixon said, you can try. See what you can do with the French. 
but Pompidou lost interest in it. And um, it's fascinating. What really intrigues me about they're very revealing of the countries these nuclear submarines. Because I was on a, a I, I dived with the Trident boat on its dummy run before it let off a missile and pretend. I mean, it was a missile, but it wasn't everything on the front end after its um, refit. And I'm going down with two American admirals because the two navies fuse for the purposes of validating each other's procedures. And the two American admirals, very interesting, and they kept bumping their heads and they said, my God, there's not much headroom in these. And I said, well, it's your fault. You eat too much protein in adolescence. And uh, the admiral then said another one, my God, that's a good laundry. We have crap laundries on our home, our higher class boats. And then the editor of the wardroom, who's already spick and span, he said, my God, carpets. And our admiral said, Wilton, actually. <laughs> and then they compared wardrooms. The Russians are all stainless steel and they've got a plunge in there and all that sauna. And we have very austere form mica because we're obsessed with fire, quite rightly, and the, ca the carpets are taken care of. But the French, they have walnut panelling, <laughs> artificial flowers, and what else do they have? Anyway, they were comparing wardrooms, you see. Nobody knows what the, um, the Chinese are like because nobody's got on one of those. But it's almost as a... Uh, we're horrified that the French uh, should have such terrible fire risks on them. I mean, they meant style. And um, the, uh, also the French think it very odd that we've got these last resort letters. I mean, one day somebody ought to do a comparison of, of, of the deterrent bearers, as it were, in the different countries. And it's absolutely fascinating. Well, it's, some of you may think it's macabre, but it is absolutely fascinating of the different way we, way we do it. Yes, more questions? Questions? The gentleman here in the front, and I'll take the gentleman there in the front row. Two quick ones. Uh, the first, uh, you talked about the, the four minutes uh, timing and all the rest of it. I just, in, the, in the current climate of uh, constant... Uh, Concerns about uh, false false uh, warnings and all the rest of it. How close did they come to filing Dale's uh, thinking there had been a release or a launch without actually having one? And the other is, uh, is sort of uh, looking forward. What would be your your uh, number one record that you would like to be declassified? Yeah, right. Very interesting. I uh, was just wondering what. Um, in all your research, what the single sort of individual act that's impressed you most in terms of either wise decision making or courage has been? Yes. God, you're trying to cheer me up again, aren't you? <laughs> Filingdale's. Well, this, was it Abel Archer in 1984? The Russian one is well known when they misread the, they thought there was incoming. I mean, there was always a fear amongst friends of mine that did all of that, that a flock of geese over a certain bit of Alaska would set it off or the other way around, and they'd have to go to Brezhnev in, in, in cups at four in the morning and say, you've got four minutes to decide. Um, so I don't know, you see, we haven't got the record of filing deals. But the wonderful Michael Quinlan, my old friend, who was Permanent Secretary of Defence, and when the um, Suez files came out, there was uh, a very interesting one, because GCHQ in Cyprus, there's a big inquest into this afterwards, it's all declassified, thought they'd got signals intelligence indicating that the Soviet Air Force was coming into Syria in large quantities on November the 6th, 1956, which was the crunch day, with the invasion underway. And it turned out to be a false alarm, but General Keighley, the task force commander, sent a flash rush message back to London that it's happening. Clear the decks. 
and all hell broke loose. At a time of maximum anxiety in the world, not least because the Hungarian uprising was being suppressed in the same week. Anyway, I said to Michael Quinlan, that's probably the moment of greatest peril, really. He said, no, it wasn't. It was June 1963. And I said, you mean October 62, Cuba? He said, I know what I mean. It's June 63. I said, but the world wasn't threatened by anything in June 63. He said, no, it wasn't. But do you remember the Lord's Test, England against West Indies? And I said, yes, every schoolboy does. You remember the last over played out in a light that was really bad, but not quite bad enough to get them off, with a position where it could have been a tie, a draw, an England win, a West Indies win. But Colin Cowdery had to come up with a broken arm to keep one end going. And David Allen of Gloucestershire in England had to keep Wes Hall out for an over. I said, what's this got to do with it? He said, well, Colin coming out and Wes Hall getting through that over took longer than four minutes, didn't it? He said, well, uh, that four minutes and more, every single screen in the operations room in Whitehall <laughs> was on the Lord's test, not finding them. <laughs> And the Russians could have had us cost-free. So Michael, if he was here, would have said that was the greatest moment of peril in the Cold War. What's the record I would like? Well, I don't know, really. It would be nice to have the drill for the Royal Yacht, actually, properly. I mean, that's just out of curiosity. It's not an earth-shaking thing. But, of course, you can't get the files declassified of the current reign. You can see George VI files if, you, uh, if you're a researcher. Go to Windsor. And that's fascinating. For example, you know the Brits are funny about Europe. It's a substitute for wars of religion, really. I suppose it's better than having wars of religion. People go very hard about Europe and sovereignty. The greatest transfer of sovereignty we ever made was in 1949, Article 5 of NATO, I think. Because if it had come to it, that was it. We, you know, one Soviet boot on West Germany, and that was it. And George VI briefing for Mr. Ernest Bevin on what NATO and the treaty meant. It's fascinating. The king didn't squeak one bit about the loss of his sovereignty under Article 5. Things like that. But we won't get the Royal Yacht file, I don't think. I, I could ask for it, I suppose, because the Royal Yacht is now in Leith. I always put my dear wife's nerves on edge, well, I did when we went to see it in Leith, because, you know, those things you listen to that give you a kind of guide. It says the hospital ship cover story. And she says, don't say anything, because I was thinking of gathering up. <laughs> Do you want to know the real story? So I don't know. I hadn't thought about the number one record. It can't be the Queen's file. I have to think about that. You're very stimulating. Depressing. I don't know. I don't know. I get depressed by... It's a, it's a thing that runs on. It's particularly prevalent these days. I think more so than in the old days. It's um, the fairy stories that the political class tell themselves. Uh, it's the degree to which they can practice enormous self-deception. And it's the decline of political language, these terrible prefabricated chunks they come up with, the, the language of management consulting and all that. That's what depresses me. It's, and a friend of mine who was in the Secret Intelligence Service and has both Chinese and Russian, I, I, we, I sat next to him. David Miliband is a nice chap and I'm fond of him, but I went to the Foreign Office for what he called his foreign policy refresh. And it was all Blue Peter and New Labour mixed up, you know. We'll solve my AIDS, then we'll do... Poverty, you know the Blue Peter approach to it. Dreadful. Blue Peter's done enormous damage to our country. Anyway, <laughs> it was full of all this bollocks, plus management speak, you see. And I'm getting terribly physically agitated by this. And this chap says to me, uh, when it finished, you couldn't stand that, could you? I said, no, it's that language. It's the contamination of language. They should all read George Orwell's Politics in the English Language and get out of this. He said, isn't it interesting? 
when you win a war, you always lose something. I said, what's that got to do with it? He said, well, we won the Second World War with our allies, but we lost the empire. We're going to lose it anyway, but it speeded it up. We prevailed in the Cold War with the allies, but we lost our language. And I said, what do you mean? He said, when we were up against the salt block, they used language as an instrument of deceit, and they were also immensely stilted. And when we were up against them, they kept us relatively clean. But since they've gone, we've had nothing with which to resist the virus of sodding management consulting. And he was right. That's what depresses me. And it's an everyday thing. It's not a particular episode. It shows my age, doesn't it? To cheer us up again. Can yes, you yes. offset that with um, any inspiring pieces or acts or pearls of wisdom that you have come across your, in your research in the archives? Well, what I do love, and I'm going to miss him, I'm writing about the 60s now, is Macmillan, his diary. Um, and it's go I'm going to go in the dark in terms of having a prime ministerial diary in October 63. I'm just writing about 1963 now. And it's the terribly witty asides and the character portrayals and the resort to classical images and Jane Austen, as he called, and all this stuff, as well as taking the piss out of himself. And also on his minutes, it's terribly funny, as you can see from first gravedigger, second gravedigger. And those are the cheering things. And that's the other thing I, I always like. I mean, I think the thing that made the Brits in authority just about bearable, some of you here will disagree with that if you were on the receiving end in other countries, is their self-irony. And Macmillan was dripping with classical illusions, steeped in history and full of self-irony. And as he's the first prime minister I grew up with, I've expected them all to be rather like that. And when you have somebody like Tony Blair, who doesn't have a self-irony gland, let alone one that secretes, <laughs> it's almost unendurable. Almost unendurable. And so it's the pure pleasure of um, Macmillan's scrawling and so on. Mrs. Thatcher's minutes are terrific, because they're all biff, biff, biff. Um, and I'm looking for one, which a friend of mine in her cabinet secretariat told me about, because you know she used to go to bed about two and get up at six and listen to farming today, then she'd get enraged by the Today programme, then she'd call in the likes of John Ashworth to shout at about nine o'clock and so on. Um, but she would get a second wind about midnight, she used to say, and then on the files, I haven't found it yet, you can see her biro has trailed like this down the page as she's fallen asleep over her papers. That's what I actually love about all of this. Um, I don't know, the, the days of digital, it's all going to be very boring being a historian, really. You know. There are still scribbles on, on, on stuff, but you, we're going to lose out very much when the archive ceases to be the traditional paper one we're used to, because you won't get the early drafts of a submission. You'll just get the final one preserved, if you're lucky. And it's the thinking process on paper that's so fabulous, as well as these wittier sides and the character assassinations and the great outbursts of loathing against Her Majesty's Treasury. This is a disgraceful paper. It could have been written by Mr. N. Chamberlain's ghost. Have you ever, A, been in a business, B, and in a war, and all this sort of stuff. I think the drink was talking. It's, I think, a combination of whiskey. And all of that I absolutely love, you see. It's pure pleasure. And we get paid for it out of here, don't we? All right, I think there was a question there near the window. And can I say to the people on the balcony up there, I can see you. So if you would like to ask a question, yes, the gentleman there. Yes. We'll do the window first. Bearing in mind the Americans effectively gave us Polaris and then Trident, 
Do we have any idea what they thought of the antiquated and Heath Robinson methods of communication by which the uh, <laughs> Prime Minister and uh, his officials were supposed to talk to each other? Can I answer that quickly? <laughs> I don't ahead. think they had any idea what it was. They probably wouldn't have believed it either, you see, because the President has this, so, this military officer all the time with the codes. And indeed, that was what led to the review in 1960, as well as the Joint Intelligence Committee assessment. Lord Louis Mountbatten, uh, First Sea Lord, or was he Chief of the Defence Staff then? I can't remember. Perhaps, perhaps just First Sea Lord. Very close to the Americans, Admiral Rickover in particular, suggested to Macmillan that he should have an officer next to him with the codes. That's what he wanted. But Macmillan didn't want that. And we've never had that, you see. And so the Americans would have thought it very odd that we didn't have that. The Russian president did, and the French have always had it. Um, the, the codes. The de Gaulle used to keep them in a kind of locket around his neck, which he would sleep with, uh, the retaliation codes and so on. So the Americans wouldn't have believed it either. They would have thought it was a, a, an example of national self-parody. And they would have been right. <laughs> um, hi there. I'm studying an MA in modern history at King's College across the street. Yes. Um, and I've been looking into the relationship between the BBC and the Information Research Department in yes. the early years of the Cold War. And in doing so, I found a lot of value in looking at the relationship between Sir Ian Jacob, the director of the BBC, and Winston Churchill, seeing as they've known each other for quite some time. Do you think that, in, that using formerly classified documents and uncovering these personal relationships between figures at that period holds a lot of value as well? as opposed to just oh, yeah. official. Ian Jacob was the most extraordinary man. He was the military secretary to the cabinet of the Second World War, was director general of the BBC um, at the time of Suez, and was very robust with Anthony Eden. Um, Anthony Eden was furious with the World Service reporting in what he thought was not a pro-British way. And Jacob, because of his military formation and his background, stood up to him wonderfully well. I remember Philip Whitehead and I did a series on post-war Britain for Channel 4, uh, on cabinet government, actually, called All the Prime Minister's Men in the mid-80s. And we went to see General Sir Ian Jacob, who sadly died since. And I've never known an interview like it. He was asked about Anthony Eden. He said, I blame the doctors. They should have let him die in 1953. <laughs> he was entirely unsuited to be Prime Minister. I mean, quite extraordinary. Um, but a great man. And the IRD is very interesting because it's the model for... RICU, whatever that stands for, the research thingy now, um, as part of the prevent strategy, uh, the, uh, the counter-jihadi um, thing. And I remember um, John Reid modelled it on the Information Research Department. Now, the IRD, you all know this better than I because you've looked at the files, I thought was hopeless in most of what it did. The only bits that were very useful were the bits that were clandestine. But a friend of mine, whose job it was in a certain Middle Eastern country to distribute IRD propaganda, knew it was hopeless and uh, one night um, he found a, a member of another bit of our for overseas representation on the seafront, it almost gives you away which country it was tipping all this stuff into the Mediterranean because he thought it was hopeless as well now it did some good things and if I had been Christopher Mayhew in the Cold War I would have tried something like that too but um, David Owen was right to run it down or to change it I think in the late 70s but they had very good people in it I think in the confrontation with Indonesia, however, it did really good things. But in cold war terms, trying to sort of get sympathetic journalists online, it recruited very interesting people. But um, I, I hope you, I'm glad you're writing it up because I still think it's pretty well under-researched, isn't it? It's a great, it's a great theme, a very interesting one.
Yes, yes. We'll take two final questions, I think. The, well, all three if the interest is there. Peter, do you want to take, shall we take four? If you like, yes. Let's do. We'll take two, two rounds of two, one there, and the lady over there. Um, you hinted at it earlier. I'm just interested in your view on the renewal of Trident. Oh, I think we should carry on. It horrifies my nut-cutlet-consuming friends in the centre of British politics, but I think we I have a cunning plan. I shouldn't tell you this. But to make it palatable to the Lib Dems, we have to associate the new system with them. They're entirely herbivorous. We don't tell the world, but instead of plutonium, which is a tricky thing and costs a lot of money, we put nut-cutlet in the front end of the warheads. <laughs> And then it'll be all right. I don't know why I tell you these things. No, I think we should carry on quite seriously. I'm sure we will. No Prime Minister. Michael Footy, if he'd become Prime Minister, would have been the exception. Can contemplate in the end being the one that gave it away, because it would be giving it away forever. If ever in the most remote contingency it was necessary just to remind people we had it in extreme circumstances. Frank Cooper used to run the MOD, and he always said to me, as long as the memory of 1940 is there, that's what will happen. Because in 1940, all that stood between us and not being a recognisable country in 1941 was a small amount of very advanced equipment operated by a very small number of highly trained young men. And I think that is what will prevail. I really do. Of course, I could be wrong. I've got a terrible record as a forecaster. But that, it's not a cost-benefit analysis in the end. As Michael Quinlan used to say, each generation, it's a gut instinct, but they clothe it in a different set of rationales. And I think there will be a Royal Navy submarine out there in 2050 with, in early Bevin's phrase, a bloody Union Jack on top of the missile. Not certain, because you can't be, but I think there almost certainly will be. And I think if the Conservatives come back and govern in their own right next time, there most certainly will be. There'll be attempts to do something cheaper or arguments that the Lib Dems will put forward. I shouldn't be unkind to them. I voted for the bastards last time. <laughs> One of the great virtues of going into the House of Lords is I'll never have the agony of deciding how to vote in a general election again. It's pure bliss. Um, I shouldn't be unkind to them because Nick Clegg's a nice man and I'm very fond of Min Campbell. But uh, there will be alternatives looked at, short of the nut cutlet in the warhead, and whether we need continuous at-sea deterrence and all that. And already it's going to be a smaller system. It's going to be eight operational tubes instead of 16 and all that. But I don't, I don't think we'd start if we weren't a nuclear power now. But I'm sure we wouldn't. But uh, giving it up is something else. So I shall believe it when it happens. But who knows? I've only ever predicted one thing accurately in my life, politically. And that was that Mr. Macmillan would succeed Anthony Eden in January of 1957. I was nine years old at the time. <laughs> and, um, it's probably because that's what the Daily Express told me. <laughs> but ever since then, my record as a forecaster has been lamentable. So you're asking the wrong chap. Can I try to group the final three questions, starting there? And if you can keep them short and to the point, that'd be appreciated. Thank you. Uh, as the Cold War happened, obviously the role of NATO's conventional forces changed massively. Certainly once the Soviets acquired a nuclear capability of their own, and they went from being a, a tripwire force, where the Americans would deliver a massive nuclear attack in response to a Soviet conventional attack, to a force of flexible response, where we needed to be capable of meeting the Soviets on conventional terms without necessarily recoursing to nuclear attack. In your 
mooches through the archives, have you come across any indication about how NATO and Britain privately assessed its chances in a conventional battle against uh, Soviet weapons? I mean, certainly there's the perception that Soviet quantity would have overpowered NATO quality, but how's that reflected in the archives? Thank you. I'd like to answer it quickly. Essentially, the documents seem to see the NATO forces, certainly after the, th the, the big nuclear capacity on both sides, as a speed bump. Not that they would have called it that in those days. is to buy a little bit more time for negotiation. Macmillan always thought that it would go nuclear very swiftly. And I don't think he believed that the smaller, uh, small-scale nuclear exchange first. He thought it would go to the big stuff very, very quickly indeed. And uh, it's very interesting that nobody has done a... Com I maybe Arnie knows a bit... But it would be a very good master's thesis for somebody is to look for the successive prime ministers in, in the Cold War era and to see what they made personally of that question of yours, actually. It should be retrievable from the Prem files at the National Archives. But um, my own view for what it's worth is that I think it would have gone nuclear very fast. And indeed, in those transition to war exercises, when they were played, it went nuclear far more swiftly than the scenarios planners meant it to. And I remember mentioning this. It was the inquest into the 1975 Wintex transition to war exercise, I think it was. And the inquest said it went nuclear far more. And a friend of mine, who was one of the players in those days, said, well, that was all to the good, you see, because the British ran their transition to war exercise in parallel with the NATO one. And NATO was penetrated by the SOVs, so the inquest, the wash-up documents, got to the SOVs very quickly. And he said it was very useful for them to realise that it would have gone nuclear far more swiftly than they imagined. And so there was utility in some bastard leaking it to them. Very interesting, all these games within games. Okay, I'm going to make a last heroic attempt at grouping the right. final two <laughs> questions. Sorry, there were two more hands, Sorry. one here and one there. Um, you talked earlier about continuity. Um, I used the example of... Um, uh, the suicide plane. Um, my question really is about the, sort of the approach of the intelligence community, really, and, and given that back in the 60s we kind of knew the enemy and we knew sort of how they, they, they might, where the threats would come from. It, now, now we've had a situation where that's less clear. Um, are, how relevant are the techniques and skills and the methods used back then, now, and if, if at all, and what changes are they making now? Do you yeah, very good question. I have a, a two-part question, and so the first is the blunt and obvious one, which is how do you feel about WikiLeaks and overclassification, etc.? Yeah. Um, and then the second question is, is more sort of obscure, and it's do you think that there's a difference or some kind of difference between deception and secrecy. And so when the, when the state decides not to tell you something, it's not lying to you. It's not actually actively deceiving its people. And so I'm yeah. sort of thinking, as opposed to when you decide to say that the, uh, that the royal barge is a, is a hospital, you're actually actively lying. Um, and if your friend did that, if your friend says, I can't tell you, 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 you don't take it as sort of a violation of integrity. If the friend lies to you, yeah. um, you do take it as a violation of integrity. So I wonder if you think there's sort of a, like sort of a, a democratic implications of those two processes and whether, whether maybe we can get rid of one of them now that we're in sort of the post-Cold War world, um, the, the deception as opposed to the, uh, maybe, maybe even if we do still need the secrecy. Very good question. Well, I've never been on inside British intelligence, but watching it from the outside, it's a question of adjustments, isn't it? 
And we had long experience of countering the provisional IRA when jihadi-inspired inter terrorism started. But there are, again, huge differences. It's, it, it was an advantage to have had that in many ways. But the provisional IRA um, active service units didn't want to go up with their stuff. They were not suicides. Um, and that's a big difference. And also, they had a hierarchy you could penetrate, the army council. And I think by the end, if I remember, well over 80% of the active service units that left the Republic of Ireland or Northern Ireland for the mainland were known about and picked up. It's very hard to do that, to just switch that over to what we're facing now. Although the active service unit problem has come back, according to the newspapers, I don't know whether that's true or not. But I think British intelligence, like everybody else, no doubt takes time to adjust to these things. But the techniques that they use, which they don't talk about and shouldn't talk about, have got much more sophisticated over the years. And the technical means, as it's called, um, is amazing, I suspect. But I'm not cleared for all that, so I don't know. But in the lifetime of somebody of my, well, they've all retired, if they're my age, from the secret world pretty well. But in my age group, they were reared in the high Cold War. They, some of them operated against uh, the provisional IRA. And they set up the systems that we now have um, for the circumstances we're now in. And in, the, in, in one person's lifetime, that's a tremendous thing. And also, I mean, it's reflected in the wider world, isn't it? If you'd said to Ernie Bevin at the press conference where he helped launch NATO in April 1949 in Washington, that Article 5 would be used, but it would be first used against the non-communist Serbia and the Balkans in the 1990s, you'd have been offered counselling, wouldn't you? I mean, it's a remarkable set of changes in, in our lifetimes. WikiLeaks. Well, I'm an open government man, but I'm not a WikiLeaks man. When you tell certain people that there's a civil nuclear power station in Pakistan with rotten perimeter security, and there's a lot of weapons-grade uranium network enriched uranium, not weapons credit, stored there. Well, thank you very much. It gives, gives open government and freedom of information a bad name, because a lot of people read across to it being freedom of information, which it isn't. And you do nothing. I mean, I, leak inquiries in Whitehall are sort of pussycat things, I'm glad to say, because I've been the subject of one or two. But if you're in a certain country, and it looks as if you've been talking to a State Department person about where your country might go and its relationship with its neighbours. And if that country is a tyranny, and it's just a kind of general round-the-houses speculation of the way things might go, that's fine if you're a Brit, because they're American, because you're used to that. But those regimes regard that as treason. And they're not very sophisticated about leak inquiries, and they're not very good on due process either. So thank you very much again. Uh, I think he's an absolute sod, that man. And it has given... Um, because it, it is read across as FOI, which it isn't, let alone open government, I think it's, it's lamentable, absolutely lamentable, if you want my candid answer. Deception. Well, I don't mind the Royal Yacht having a deception attached to it in those circumstances. And also, in certain circumstances, I would have done it myself. I mean, going back to Frank Cooper, Home Secretary of the Ministry of Defence in 82, every Friday, a selected number of hacks, of whom I wasn't one, um, went to a briefing and the Falklands War was underway. And Frank said to them, don't expect any D-Day style landings. Uh, expect different, i.e. pinpricks. Well, I would have said the same. 
Because if you're trying to mount a mini D-Day landing in those circumstances, stretched in that way, you deceive people, don't you? I would have done exactly the same, and I would do it again. But in an open society, you have to keep that to an absolute minimum. You really do, and it has to be for operational reasons. So you may think I'm a tremendous old throwback, a complete buffer, the way I've answered those questions, but that's actually what I feel, quite strongly. All right. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming tonight. We are going to have an event series much like this again next year, and I would very much like to be able to welcome you to that in the next academic year. In the meantime, please do have a look at our website of the Cold War Studies program. We are investing a lot in that website, and you will be able to find podcasts and much more else there. Do have a look. But finally, of course, thank you very much, Peter Hennessy. It is an honor and a pleasure for us to have you as a friend of LSE and as a friend of the Cold War Studies program, and you will always be welcome back. Thank you very much. Yeah.